Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm joined by Elizabeth, Megan, Liz, and Amy. We are picking up where we left off last week, hearing the rest about Amy's $10 million verdict. So you've talked a lot about the science and your medical experts. How did you work up the damages in the case? Did you put on the clients themselves? We had a life care plan because my client was in a wheelchair and was going to need future care. I asked my life care planners to be conservative in terms of the needs and the amount of care they need because I've seen over the years, life care planners just be made to look ridiculous with some of the things that they put in. And they're just doing their job. They're just looking at the perfect world and what this could really benefit this client. But I asked them to be very bare bones about it. So that starts with having a life care planner who understands what it means to be cross-examined on some of these things and is very conservative with the plan. In this case, though, the defense also had a life care planner. And this is interesting. You've got a defendant who has a life care plan, and the whole point of the defense life care plan is to cut our life care plan in half, at least. If they're not cutting it in half, then they're probably not being disclosed. And, of course, the idea is for the jury to award less. However, it puts the defense attorney in a really trick position because they're kind of admitting that there could be negligence liability here, right? Negligence, liability, and causation. And so it's a weird thing to argue. And in this particular case, the defense attorney kind of did have a hard time. I mean, he was basically like, look, this doesn't mean we think you that the plaintiff should win. Just want to be clear about that. We're just trying. And you're thinking, you're arguing that pretty hard. Like, if I'm on the jury, I'm like, wait a minute, are you conceding? Not only aren't you conceding liability and causation, but it sounds to me like you're trying to get a discount on this case. And that's what I argued. I argued the only difference between these two plans, because the care categories were very similar, is the defendant hired this person merely to get a discount on their negligence and to get a half price blue light special on their negligence. And if you've got the right case, then that lands pretty well. And I think obviously it did here because <laughs> the question, the first question from the jury was to see both life care plans. Now, as a plaintiff's attorney, you think, okay, well, they're already on damages after 30 minutes. That's got to be good because they've already worked through who's at fault and, and if it caused harm. Because if you were going to get dumped, they wouldn't have gotten through to damages because that's like the last thing they do. So I felt good about that. But you never know. I've never, I never let myself get too excited because I've had questions that sounded pretty good. And then you get dumped six hours later and your heart's broken for the rest of your life. So you don't read too much into it, but they asked for that. So we give them that. And then they asked for an Excel spreadsheet and a computer or, or I, I couldn't quite understand it. I'm thinking, what are they doing with these two numbers? They're and working so hard on damages. They're somehow. working hard on damages. Even if they're cutting down my life care plan, I'm still happy if that's you know what it is. Then they asked for 12 copies of the life care plan. So I guess everybody wanted to go through line by line but for damages, in addition to the life care plans, I had my client, a husband and wife, testify, and then my client's brother who takes care of him during the day when my client's wife is at work. I feel strongly that there needs to be damages every single day that you're giving testimony in some form. 
And even if it's a 30 minute brother talking about, you know, having to help his younger brother into the shower or wash his back for him or whatever it is, just a little piece of it, just to keep the jury aware of why we're here, that there's a real human being here. This whole family is just so wonderful, but having prepped the brother for his deposition and then covering his deposition and getting to know him, just what a sweetheart. He's just such a great guy and he was such a great advocate for his little brother. And what I thought was perfect in the order in which you put these witnesses on was you started you put the brother on and the brother was able to explain, you know, my little brother is is a stoic man. He's a quiet man. He's not a complainer. He's not a whiner. He doesn't want people's sympathy. And so then when the client actually went up there and he was quiet and he was stoic and he was not tearful or asking no, people fact, for sympathy. Pretty upbeat. Yeah. I think the jury was could see Oh, it's it's not that he's not hurt. It's that, that this is his personality. And I know that because one of his closest family members just explained that to me. Yeah. So I thought that that was a really effective order of witnesses to make sure that the jury, who doesn't know these folks at all, these are all strangers to them, understood what exactly this meant to this family. Yeah. And I will say that Pat put the brother on and had worked that part out, knowing that our client was kind of stoic and was going to be on the next day, had the forethought to say, I'm going to try to explain this to them. And I thought that was worked. It was very effective. On the flip side, something that I think was incredibly ineffective by the defense is that they tried to make the argument that the client, well, he had other problems before. He wasn't, he wasn't the pinnacle of health before. And every time that got brought up, the immediate answer was, yeah, but he wasn't in a wheelchair. Right. And then the jury could look, turn around and see a man in a wheelchair. So it's just driving home the point again that this man walked into the hospital expecting excellent medical care that he was entitled to. And he is never going to walk safely or independently again. You have robbed him of his independence. And every time they brought it up, I'm just thinking, why are you doing that? That is an oftentimes effective tool. I would call it a jury nullification tool, which is to have the jury believe this guy was really kind of sick and had problems, maybe a little bit older. So what's the difference, really? And, and it didn't really land, obviously, in this case, because even if you set aside all the other little things that are going on, He's in a wheelchair and he wasn't before. So in that situation, which is unique to this case, you don't always get that. But in this situation, you're right. That was always the answer. Uh, yeah, but he walked in and was wheeled out. I mean, like, period. I know, period. But the family were wonderful people. We did not have them on the stand very long, maybe 30 minutes each, really to explain factually a few things, who they are, their background. You need the jury to kind of feel like they know them, but most importantly, you want the jury to want to try to help them. So there were many passages in my client's physical therapy records and the rehab records that listed my client as motivated, motivated. And I asked him about that. I picked out three or four or five references from the physical therapy records that were all positive that said things like he had a good day or was excited about, you know, something or, or I wouldn't say all positive, maybe one that said, you know, his hands hurt today or just little things that gave the jury this impression 
truthfully, the, the reality of it was this man's been working really, really hard for three years to get some function back, continues to go to physical therapy, continues to work hard. Physical therapy can be so painful and so exhausting. To remain motivated through that, if you have anything like that in your case, you have got to embrace it. Don't be afraid that he's doing well today or he had a good day and think that that's going to somehow diminish, you know, the damages. The jury needs to believe that they can help this man and juries want to help motivated, driven, you know, people. So I always kind of bring out the good stuff. Plus, it's just sometimes feels so painful to have a client on the stand and to know how hurtful it is for them to relive these things. I always just feel badly about it. And sometimes you worry the jury is kind of rolling their eyes like, oh, you're just trying to get, you know, real dramatic testimony out of this client. So I'm always probably more comfortable letting the medical records and the medicine and the doctors talk about the damages. And with the clients, obviously you have to talk about their new normal, kind of before and after kind of things. But also very much talk about what gets them up in the morning and what keeps them motivated. But I always end my direct examinations and my clients with questions about the future, such as what are your fears and what are your worries? Because I want to leave that little lingering concern with the jury, because if the fear is I can't get out of my home because I can't get my wheelchair over the threshold or down the two stairs, I want that jury to think, I can help you with that. I'm going to help you get out of that living situation and get you to a home where you can wheel yourself out if the house is on fire or whatever awful thing could happen. So that's just my kind of technique. It's very much a, a kind of an up and down, good and bad for the clients. But these, these folks were so wonderful. And most importantly, they trusted me. And that starts with the first phone call, the first interaction, because we turned down money before the case started, significant money. And I was terrified about that because even that offer, which I knew wasn't enough, would have allowed them to do things differently with their lives. We turned it down I was very nervous about it, but they trusted me. And that's what we all shoot for. That's what we all shoot for. It's what we work hard for every day, both in terms of talking with them, but also showing them how hard we work on the case. One of my best days ever is at the end of a trial day and a client saying, thank you for your hard work for us today. And for the effort that you've put in, it shows how hard you've worked. And I don't know a greater compliment than that. I mean, obviously a verdict from a jury is good too, but <laughs> a greater compliment from the clients for that. I can think of a pretty good runner up for a great compliment. Yeah. If you'd like to talk about the question that the jury asked. Oh, this is so fun. <laughs> okay. Best jury question ever. Can we find out the plaintiff's attorney's fees? Specifically, what is the percentage? And I was like, hmm, that's, that's interesting. And then 
The second one, can we order the defendants to pay the plaintiff's attorney's fees? <laughs> I was like, judge, can we say yet? No. So, and we had to answer no to both of those. But I mean, pretty much at that point, I felt like, okay, girl, you can give yourself some grace for this one. I feel like that's probably a good sign. <laughs> right. And it wasn't too much later after that, that they came back. So how long was the jury out? Three hours, three and a half hours. But you're sitting there with your client. It's yeah. been almost four hours. Yeah. You've done everything you possibly can do for these clients. Jerry comes back. They've got the verdict. I cried. I did. I, I cried. I, I have been sitting there so many times watching the jury file in. You know, everybody has masks on. But you can't really tell if they're looking at you, if they're smiling, if they're not. They weren't very you know, staring expressive. or expressive. No, they just weren't very expressive Four person hands, the verdict forms and all the instructions to the bailiff, the bailiff walks it to the judge. You're trying desperately to see if you could see it and then show it to the judge. The judge also expressionless flips through through pages and then asks the, who's the four person. They raise their hand. Is this your verdict? Yes, it is. And then proceeds to read it. And the first question that's asked is basically who wins. And there's one line and it, it's the plaintiff's name and then the defendant's name. And you write the winner on the line. So the first thing that is read is who wins. And so our client's name was on the line. And I, I was just so relieved because so many times I've heard the defendant's name on that line. And then you get to the category of damages and in medical malpractice in Missouri, you get four categories and we had numbers in every category. And the jury gave us the exact number we asked for for past economic, the exact number we asked for for past non-economic, added money to the life care plan, maybe a hundred grand or something, and then added money to the future non-economic loss to round up to eight million for my primary plaintiff. And then as soon as I heard that, I knew they'd given $2 million to the loss consortium because the numbers were just adding up. And that's what I'd asked for, for the loss consortium. Then it made sense why they wanted to go through the life care plans because they were looking at the defense life care plans to see if there was anything in that that wasn't in the plaintiff life care plan and obviously scooped it out of the defense life care plan and put it in the plaintiff's life care plan. You add it all up. And then still came $3,000 short of the $8 million and just added it to the non-economic sure. loss. And then it was unanimous. And in Missouri, you only need nine to win. To get a unanimous verdict, y'all, is, as you know, really special. But to get a unanimous Eight-figure verdict in St. Louis County on a MedMal case, it is something. And I'm really, really proud of it and of our firm and of our staff and Liz and Pat and everybody that helped out. And then I immediately turned to the clients who we always kind of put in the pews because it's just too crowded at the table and they get so self-conscious at the table. It's just so much better for everybody for them to be a few rows back. And they were just elated, you know, and that may not be the right word. I think relief is probably the best word. Relief that it went the way we believed it should have. And that more importantly, it was over all that emotion that's in it and that it was over. And so it was a good day. 
So Amy and Liz, I know last time we recorded, you guys were in the throes of trial prep for both of your cases. And so now at this next recording, Liz, you had a fantastic settlement and Amy, you had a fantastic verdict. So how like do you feel now to be on the other side of it? After our August trial, which was a defense verdict, even though we'd had, you know, some settlements and all that stuff, just going directly into another trial prep for significant cases. There were many moments in the previous two weeks that I was ready to say, why do I keep doing this to myself? And I think it's on the heels of COVID and just everything being weird for a year and a half and not normal and not what I'm used to. I told my husband, I think it was the maybe the Tuesday before trial, on the way out the door, I said, look, this is hard. There was money on the table. I asked my clients to turn it down. I was super stressed. I didn't have Liz with me because we had to do the divide and conquer. And Pat did an amazing job, no question about it, and really stepped up. But Liz and I have been trying cases together now for four or five years, and that was a little bit different. And it just felt like there was so much pressure in a very unfamiliar setting that I told my husband, I said, look, don't let me forget how I feel today, which was really down, because I want to try not to feel this way in the future. So what can we do? Because I knew that if I won, it would all go away, right? It would just all go away. All is good. And I knew if I lost again... I mean, inconsolable is probably an understatement. But I do think it's important to remember how you feel in the process. I didn't like feeling that way. I was really worried about everything. And you can't even mildly pretend to be worried about anything in trial, right? Everything has to be 100% assured, 100% confident, both in terms of the way you present yourself to your client especially by the way you present yourself to the opposing counsel, to the judge, to the jury, to everybody. And there are only a handful of people that I can be, especially in the middle of trial, can really be raw with. And I told my husband, we just really need to set aside some time to think about how I don't want to feel this way again. And what does that really look like? And what does that really mean? But I know Liz and I, we've had some some hard days the last few weeks for sure. It's been a lot. And I think a lot of us are feeling this way because we're just, as we had said, whenever we recorded two weeks ago, we're back 100 miles an hour. And I believe right now I'm looking at the next month. I've got a case set the first week in November. I'm going to answer the bell, folks. I'm going to answer the bell because that's what we do despite how detrimental it can be to our mental and physical health. But I'm going to answer the bell. And Liz, you've got one too, and you're going to do the same thing. Do you feel any sort of sense of relief from that maybe peak of burnout that we were experiencing two weeks ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, no question about it. I can't even tell you if we'd gotten zeroed out on that case last week. Spiraling. I know, but <laughs> but what I was trying to tell myself is I've been really down before. I've lost cases in a row. I've had cases back to back. 
I've been exhausted. I've neglected my duties and my responsibilities as a wife and as a mother and as a daughter and you name it. I've been there before and we've had this conversation before. It's about recognizing it. And when you have a moment, making it right, making it right and always being aware of the need to, to do that. I don't think I've ever wanted to go out and try cases more than after this conversation. <laughs> oh, it's an addiction. I think it is to a certain extent because as we, I think, have pointed out, there are highs and lows and it's what we do. It's what we do. It's what we want to do. It's, it's what we need to continue to do. And let's face it, we're good at it. So why not? Wow, ladies. So having heard the whole case start to finish to verdict, all the feelings, the sweat, the tears that go into working up an entire case, getting to the point where you actually have a moment to come into your office the following week and just sit with what just happened and think about the good and the bad of the last two plus years, all the way to the point that the case is officially done. As you're sitting there in your office thinking about the case, what is the biggest thing, Amy, that you think you learned from that that you're going to take with you moving forward? It's probably a validation that all of the hours that we spend reviewing our clients' medical records, every single page from every provider and knowing exactly what that medical history is in terms of before the case, during the case, and after the case. You have to know everything. The way I think is there's this huge universe of information. And that's how we start every case. You get all the information and you start whittling it down. What is important? And unless you know everything that's out there, you cannot whittle it down to the main key points. So what I learned is really more of a validation of the way I've approached these cases over the years, which is never to outsource reviewing the medical records. You can outsource having the medical records summarized by someone, but you can never outsource physically laying eyes on every single page because I would never have seen the neuromonitoring entry that was the key to the case. There was another entry by a treating physician that was a very important part of the case that was on page 692 of, you know, 18,000 pages or something like that. And if I hadn't looked at every single page of those records, I never would have found that. And a, a law clerk or someone summarizing the records may have seen it, but had no would have no context for how important it was. There's no substitute for knowing your client's medical records. This case really reminded me of that. What I've learned from this case is just you got to be a dog on a bone about these records. And this has happened before where we've ordered medical records or we've ordered whatever document and we don't get everything the first time. And you don't know that you haven't received everything until you go through it with that fine tooth comb and you start asking questions and you start fighting for records and trying to uncover who has it and why haven't I gotten it yet. And so just really being tenacious and following through and making sure every stone is uncovered is absolutely key to winning cases like this. Well, ladies, I said at the beginning of this that while I was out on leave, I felt like I missed out on a lot. And 
I was right. I missed out on so much. I'm so happy that I was able to hear about this phenomenal case that you all worked up. And I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. As always, thanks for tuning in to Heels in the Courtroom, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks. Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And if you love Heels in the Courtroom, check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. John Simon's The Jury Is Out podcast focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice and dive into the legal drama behind America's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription in Results Don't Lie. Subscribe today. Subscribe today.